court. That cool. You can be seated. Good morning. In the case of George Zacharias against His Majesty the King, Rubinder Danu for the appellant George Zacharias, Rebecca J.K. Gill, Upa Daliwal, Amber uh, Pachak, Kara Kondro for the respondent is Majesty the King, Jeremy Streeter and Jacob Milton for the intervener Attorney General of Ontario, Tom Spark for the intervener Attorney General of Alberta. So you can proceed. Good morning, Justices. It's a pleasure to be here today. In terms of oral submissions, I will employ the rule of threes today to address three overarching issues in this appeal and three primary points within each. The first two issues deal with the interveners. The first issue, whether the dissent is compatible with the story test. The second issue that will be addressed will be whether the dissent creates a categorical rule. And lastly, the third issue with regard to the respondent, whether the new issues on appeal should be heard. By way of introduction, the dissent addresses a critical issue for the proper assessment of impact under Section 24.2. That is, any court conducting the Section 24.2 analysis must have an accurate picture of the effect of state conduct on an accused charter protected interests. An accurate picture can only be obtained by a purposive and generous approach to the obtained in a manner requirement and examination of the entire chain of events of charter infringing conduct at the threshold stage. This ensures that the experience of the individual at the hands of the state is not viewed in a vacuum and devoid of context. As per the dissent, it does not necessarily matter at the whether the breaches are seen as one continuing breach or a number of breaches at the threshold stage. Rather, what matters is that the impact assessment reflect the full extent of the state infringing conduct. Mr. Daniel, can I stop you? you, you you're, you're, uh, in your factum, at the end of your factum, your penultimate paragraph, you propose to the court that uh, we adopt the dissenting reasons of Kular to overturn the con uh, conviction and enter a, an acquittal. Can, do, you, do you think that, having taken, uh, taken on board the positions of the interveners, do you think that's what we should do? Or do you think we should flesh out this question that you've just raised? And I think the other thing, I'm wondering if even if we were predisposed to adopt 
Justice Kular's reasons. I'm surprised that you, you didn't question her paragraph 63, in which she said she agreed with the trial judge that the first and third branches of the analysis support inclusion of the evidence. Do you think she was right to say the first branch supports inclusion? In which case, if she was wrong, then perhaps we shouldn't adopt her reasons. Yeah, so in terms of the uh, first question, the intervener's uh, position and whether we should, um, uh, uh, the last paragraph of the, uh, uh, the appellant's factum, in terms of what we have here, we say that in terms of what the trial judge did, it was a fundamental misunderstanding of the obtained in a manner requirement. Here we have clearly an infringement with regard to the detention. And in terms of how the obtained in a manner requirement on its face works, there is a clear causal, contextual, and temporal connection with the evidence that was adduced. And so we say that is a major misunderstanding of how the obtained in a manner requirement works. In order to properly assess impact, if we do not assess the continuum of breaches, we do not have a proper impact assessment. So yes, we still uh, uh, continue with that position. Are you urging on us the American doctrine of fruit of the poison tree? Well, I'm not uh, as familiar with the American law as Canadian law, but I am urging yes with regard to this. I think yes is the operative part of yes, your answer. Yes, we are. So we say in terms of the fruit of the poison tree, that doctrine applies to the excision of search warrants, and there's a major inconsistency in our law if it does not apply to warrantless searches. So, so it yes. means, Mr. Danu, that uh, let's say that we have a minor breach, in my example, and that minor breach uh, leads to the discovery of some evidence. Uh, is it your position that uh, that evidence should always be excluded because it it came as a result of a, a breach, although technical or minor? No, absolutely not. What we're saying is that by addressing what flows from that initial minor breach, we're addressing the doctrine of the obtained in a manner requirement. But what happens then, as we go into the evaluative stage, we'll have the full context of what has occurred. And balancing is a very robust tool with regard to Section 24.2. If it's a minor breach, that will be accounted for in terms of seriousness. If the officer proceeded with the subjective belief that he was proceeding on proper grounds, that will balance, as we saw in McCollman. We had a breach there in terms of the impact analysis. The entire impact of the breach was discussed, but the evidence was still admitted. And we, just to get back to the second question, when we do this balancing, do you think Justice Kular was right to say that the first branch uh, pulls in favor of inclusion? Well, I'm here uh, riding the coattails of the dissent. So in terms of uh, whether she was right or not, I've accepted uh, her position. In terms of the question uh, uh, Justice is posing, if we were to do the analysis completely afresh, then certainly seriousness could be impacted if we're considering the continuum of breaches that would result. Well, even the initial breach, I mean, to say that, to say that the, uh, the detention and the sniffer dog search uh, are, from the point of view of seriousness, charter breaches but pull towards inclusion, I'm, I'm uh, hard pressed to understand that proposition. 
Yeah. I mean, maybe they're awash, maybe they're neutral given the whole of the circumstance, but well, they pull towards inclusion, a charter breach. That strikes me as, as rather fantastical. Yes, and I'm, I'm not saying that I disagree with uh, you, uh, Justice, but what I will say in terms of how Justice Kular conducted the analysis, uh, perhaps that gives the benefit of the doubt both to the trial judge as well as to the Crown in terms of the fresh evidence that's going to be adduced. So if we adduce fresh evidence just for the impact portion, that does not prejudice the Crown nearly as much as if we were to adduce fresh evidence with regard to the seriousness component. And perhaps that was the reasoning of Madam Justice Kular. Can I go back to a fundamental principle that you, you just raised, that uh, you're drawing an analogy, I guess, between what happens in the context of an ITO and an un uh, unlawful search, and we excise out from the ITO uh, what was unlawfully obtained, but we have a different test for ITOs. Is it really um, a good idea to transpose the very particular law that we've developed in respect of search warrants and ITOs and generalize it to all charter breaches? Well, I'm hearing the, um, the uh, words of Justice Doherty and Golub ringing in my ears in terms of the, the distinction between ITOs and uh, warrantless arrests. And so what I'll say to that, the, and there's, there's issues about, you know, is a warrantless arrest so dynamic that uh, it does not apply to the ITO context? So what I'll say to that is that, first, not every warrantless arrest is a dynamic split-second decision, as perhaps the wording Golub would have us believe. Typically, an officer takes enough time to assess the conditions before they proceed with regard to whether they have the appropriate grounds or not. Second, if an officer has a subjective and honestly held belief that they have grounds to detain, they're going to proceed on the basis of that belief. So this fear that the officer is going to be frozen trying to assess whether he's done right or wrong is not accurate because the agents of the state know already that their actions are subject to judicial oversight down the road. So if we transplant that, um, that level of analysis to investigative detentions, we say that is not going to affect how officers work on the street. Third, the baby is not thrown out with the bathwater in terms of the excision process. So if the officer has other grounds to arrest that are not uh, unlawfully obtained, they can still rely upon that. It's only those situations where the grounds of arrest are completely unlawful that we have a complete excision. And then finally, once again, we go to Section 24.2, and Section 24.2, the evaluative stage, is robust. We can balance the impact with the seriousness, and seriousness will always be attenuated by at least neutral faith when the officer honestly believed he or she had grounds to uh, proceed with the investigation. You, you um, don't mention Jennings in your factum. Yes. Uh, and you can see that your friends later this morning will be betting the house on Jennings. Yes. Um, I see you mention it in your condensed book. Maybe you could give us your thoughts as to whether Justice Kular's approach overturns the line of cases to which Jennings speaks. Thank you uh, for directing me to Jennings, and I'll do that now. So the appellant, per the rule of three, makes three points with regard to uh, the intervener in Jennings. First, the Ontario interveners themselves say in their factum that Gen the Jennings approach will create a specific and limited impact assessment which does not consider the entire chain of events. And we say that 
Such an approach and even this language used by the intervener is contrary once again to the generous and purposive approach to the obtained in a manner requirement and the need to examine the entire chain of events. Second, the Ontario Court of Appeal in Jennings was very careful to limit the applications of Jennings by saying that a categorical rule would be created for impaired cases and the key word is since. Since individuals invariably arrested and taken to a police station to provide for, are taken to a police station to provide further samples. Now, when we look at the factual circumstances of impaired cases, they're all extremely similar as per Jennings. You have an ASD demand, you blow a fail, your transport detachment, further samples are taken, rinse and repeat. In all other criminal investigations, the factual circumstances differ greatly. I, I put to you that there is no principal difference between impaired driving and, 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 and the possession of drugs for trafficking. They're both criminal offenses. And, 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 to, and to say, oh, well, there's a special rule for impaired driving would make the whole system incoherent. I mean, there's either uh, uh, you take into account the consequences of being arrested or you don't. And to say, oh, well, you don't take into account for impaired driving, that's completely different. I mean, it, it's, it's arbitrary. It has no principal basis. It's, it's one way or the other, it seems to me. And I agree wholeheartedly. And I would say in Jennings, the O-Yang approach, the alternative approach to Jennings is actually the preferable approach because what Jennings has done is thrown a wrench into the obtained in a manner requirement. It makes no sense when we look at the charter from a macro level. So I'll just continue in terms of sections 495 and 498 of the criminal code. They contemplate various degrees of state interference. And even if we leave, leave those sections aside, Oftentimes, we have officers investigating and then releasing at a scene pending an investigation, such as with a drug case for an expert report or for analysis of drug exhibits. With regard to Section 495, we often have release pending at the scene. We also have individuals who are taken to custody and released shortly thereafter, or they're held for, say, six hours, as in this case, or a strip search. All that is to say that there's various different scenarios in every other type of criminal investigation that differs greatly than the same fact pattern that we see in impaired investigations. So that concern of a categorical approach doesn't apply because the impact assessment will vary greatly in all other manner of criminal investigations. The third point I will make with regard to the Jennings issue is that we see recent examples of Section 9 impact assessments that are quite contrary to the Jennings approach. And even for impaired cases, as in McCollman, and as well from the Ontario Court of Appeal in Gonzales and Daly. What these cases do is that they use a generous and purposive approach and examine the enti entire chain of events to assess impact. And we have to keep in mind here, this is a Section 9 case. And Section 9 is a broad right that serves to protect individual liberty from unlawful state interference. An individual should be left alone, and Section 9 engages both liberty and privacy interests. And the appellant references Gonzalez, which is a decision from uh, Mr. Justice uh, Watt from the Ontario Court of Appeal. This is a case of a Section 9 breach, but the it's Section 9 breach only, but the impact assessment shows a strong causal connection between the initial unlawful detention and the discovery of evidence from that initial detention to the arrest, to the search of a van, to a search warrant for the van, to the search warrant for a house. 
So all of these different um, charter infringements are considered at the impact stage, contrary to Jennings. And what is happening here in this case is that the impact of the Section 9 interests are, considering, are being considered very broadly at the impact stage. And this is the approach we want in terms of that generous and purposive approach to the Charter. Recently, from this court in R and in McCollman, it was a very similar approach to Gonzalez in terms of assessing impact. Here we have an impaired case, just like Jennings. It's a Section 9 breach only, but when it comes to the impact assessment, this court, in order to properly assess the full range of the impact on the individual, considered the unlawful stop, the arrest, the fact that the police station, he was the individual was detained at the police station for several hours, that significant evidence was obtained from the individual, including observations of impairment, statements regarding consumption, and two breath tests, all considered at the impact stage all flowing from a Section 9 breach. So the language used in McCollman was, therefore, because of that amount of impact, the unlawful stop constituted a marked, although not egregious, intrusion to the accused charter-protected interests. And what this tells us, and I'll just go back to this theme, is that the evaluative stage of Section 24.2 is robust. We must give it credit and allow it to work as it's meant to do. McCollman shows this. One can have an accurate picture of the impact actually experienced without being categorical, even for an impaired case, as in McCollman, where the evidence was not excluded. Balancing, then, is a powerful tool, even if the impact, as in McCollman, is marked. Seriousness, once again, can be attenuated where an officer proceeds in good faith, or if he's wrong in the law, or wrong in terms of how he conducted themselves, at least neutral faith at a minimum. Jennings is quite the opposite of examining the entire chain. It actually severs the chain by rewarding unlawful conduct, and that is contrary to charter uh, values in the appellant's position. I, I would, excuse me, can I just intercede here? Um, I understand the point that you're making about the balancing in Jennings, but does it matter in what you're putting forward if we see um, the, the various um, cascading charter infringing conduct as an impact or as a separate breach of an independent right? Yes, and this is what uh, Madam Justice Kular addresses directly, and she says there is actually no difference. The important thing is that it's addressed at the impact stage. If, certainly, it must, be, uh, it, it must have an impact on charter rights uh, at the threshold, uh, for the threshold requirement to make it to the evaluative stage. However, whether it's separate breaches or a continuous breach makes no difference. The important is, importance is, is that it's actually addressed so that we can have a proper balancing at the end of the day with regard to Section 24. Council, the, the, the uh, Attorney General for Ontario speaks of the importance in reading Jennings of the, of the independent character of the wrongdoing and gives the example of, say, a, 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 the, uh, in the breath sample context, context if the accused was also prevented from exercising their right to counsel, that that's qualitatively different. Do you disagree with that? No, I don't. So we can have independent breaches as well. All we're saying is that we must, based upon the obtained and amount of requirements, see what flows from that initial breach. And that must be assessed at the impact stage to have a, uh, an actual, um, uh, the full context as to what the impact was. And then it's balanced with the seriousness. What do we make of Shale and McKinsey 
about the fact that the SNF searchers are uh, minimally intrusive. Does it have an impact on uh, the second factor at stage two of grant? The fact that those searchers are minimally intrusive? Of course. So, of course, in terms of impact, we would have to accept the law uh, as it stands. And uh, if it's considered minimally intrusive, it would have a lesser impact. And we accept that. Okay. I do want to um, address the other intervener as well in terms of the uh, Alberta intervener arguing that story cannot withstand the uh, approach of the dissent. And once again, the appellant will make three points. The first point is that the dissent approach is actually consistent with other appellate courts and how appellate courts have applied the law for a great many years. And we see this Ontario with money. We see this with uh, McEachern in Nova Scotia. We see it with Blanchard in Newfoundland. And we see it with Latasur in uh, Saskatchewan. Now, trial courts have, of course, followed appellate direction. And so the uh, dissent's approach is also consistent with the vast majority of trial courts in terms of how they apply uh, charter values and balance that with the story test. Even in the decision, the very recent decision from the Alberta Court of Appeal, R and Love, uh, cited by the intervener, the majority of decisions referenced are all in alignment with the dissent's approach. And we also see most recently, uh, very recently, no, uh, from the Nova Scotia Provincial Court in Lambert, now returned for other grounds, that most decisions align with the dissent's approach. So what this tells us is that the dissent is on solid, precedential, and principled ground. The second point I'll make is that a principled approach to the story analysis is already applied, in that we balance the subjective state of mind of um, the police in Charter of Ardeers. We respect this, but not at the expense of charter values. We see this in our court, from this court, in R and Tim very recently, where this court indicated that a lawful arrest cannot be based on a mistake of law, even if made in good faith. And we'll recall that the lower courts in Tim applying story held that the subjective belief of the officer was not objectively reasonable due to his seeing gabapentin being trafficked in the past. We also, the intervener also um, relies on R and Patterson and says that the uh, ratio there, that there's no need to prove voluntariness for charter vardiers because the focus on this is on the subjective state of the mind of the officer applies. Patterson is, of course, a good law. We, ta we take no issue uh, with this, but as discussed by the BC Court of Appeal in R and Nguyen, voluntariness vardiers are typically and quite properly heard before and separately from charter vardiers, and for very good reason. There's a different standard in terms of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and also a different onus in terms of the onus being on the crown. As per this court in R and GB, no use may be made of an inadmissible statement at any stage of a trial whatsoever, because this is contrary to the confessions rule and would be contrary to section seven of the charter. Once again, what this tells us is that if there was a voluntariness vardir that was held, the statement was ruled inadmissible, the officer would not be able to rely upon that in a charter of our dear to enhance his grounds. So there are already principled approaches to the story analysis where the story analysis does not trump the charter. And as well, what this tells us is that the story test is not so narrow and inflexible that it does not allow for such a principled approach. 
The third point I'll make in terms of um, the intervener and the story analysis is that the test is not only consistent with uh, Tim, GB, Patterson, and story, but it also promotes consistency with the law and other important areas as well. It's consistent, first of all, with the generous and purposive approach to the obtained in a manner requirement, and it's also consistent with examining the entire chain of events. Secondly, going back to the fruit from the poison tree, the approach of the dissent is once again consistent with the principle that the state should not benefit from unlawful acts. If we assess this from the point of view of the reasonable person, it's quite an incongruity that that principle would stand in one context uh, with uh, search warrants but not for warrantless searches. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's a significant inconsistency for a cornerstone principle of our law. It's also contrary, we say, to Section 8 and Section 9 rights, just as in GB, admitting a statement that's involuntary would be contrary to Section 7 rights. The last point I'll make in terms of consistency with other areas of the law is that this court, very recently in Beaver, gave a detailed analysis on the fresh start approach for the obtained in a manner requirement. And this court stated that charter compliant conduct may disassociate charter breaches from impugned evidence by severing any connection or rendering any, rendering any connection tenuous or remote. The intervener's approach is, approach is quite opposite of the fresh start analysis in that evidence obtained from an unlawful detention is clearly causally, contextually, and temporally connected to the uh, grounds that will be uh, relied upon by the officer. So what this does is it leads to absurdities in our uh, um, position with regard to what the intervener is suggesting, such as disincentives to obtain search warrants, or lowering standards um, so that fishing expeditions result and officers um, pursue a detention with uh, spurious grounds. The last area that I would like to address with regard to this court is the new issues on appeal question. With regard to the um, respondent's uh, position. Sorry, before we get to that, can I just turn you back to the Crown's Factum, paragraph 47, uh, where it talks about the evidentiary record being insufficient when we're looking at uh, the, the chain, et cetera. Yes. And can you respond to those uh, arguments? Yes, and I'll do that now. So in terms of the, uh, the argument of the uh, respondent, Sufficiency of the record and fairness to the parties go hand in hand, and I can address those with the same uh, three points. For those three points, it's somewhat helpful to divide the entire chain of events, in this case, into three segments. So the first segment being the initial investigative detention to the sniffer dog search. The second segment being the arrest, handcuffing, uh, and the search of the truck and the luggage. And the third segment being anything that occurred after the recovery of the impugned evidence. So first, onus. So we say that as per Caslake, it's a warrantless search, it's prima facie unreasonable, the burden is on the Crown to prove its lawfulness. In terms of that first segment, that initial investigative detention to the sniffer dog search, those issues were clearly in play before the, in the voir dire and the trial judge, the Crown and the defense were all well aware that there were section nine and eight issues with regard to the sniffer dog search and the detention. If the detention was unlawful, the Crown knew that anything flowing from it was unlawful, including the pat-down, as well as the sniffer dog search. The onus 
that is upon the Crown in our respectful submission has little to no meaning if Crown can now complain insufficiency of the record because they neglected to call evidence that would have justified that search flowing from the detention. That was incumbent upon the Crown to do. If we take a look at the second segment, the arrest to the search of the truck and the luggage, the evidence recovered from the truck was also clearly at play in the voir dire. The judge knew that this was the impugned evidence. The Crown was aware, about, uh, aware of this as well. The search of the truck and the luggage was causally, temporally, and contextually related to the unlawful investigative detention as well as the sniffer dog search. Once again, the onus is on the Crown who can't, in a respectful submission, assume that basic charter principles such as the obtained in a manner requirement doesn't apply for some reason. And lastly, the third segment, of course, is the six-hour detainment. That is also causally, contextually, and temporally related um, and would flow from the initial unlawful detention. So we say onus is, a, is an issue here. Yeah. But, I mean, it, it all kind of hangs together. Once, once the officer said, I want to get a sniffer dog in here, you want to get the, uh, I guess, the, the Mr. Zacharias out of the way so it doesn't interfere with the sniffer dog. And, and if you think this guy is transporting, you got a big drug ship, you got to worry this guy's got a gun or a knife. I mean, criminals are known to carry weapons. So, you know, we're going to pat you down just to make sure you don't shoot us in the back, right? And, and it, I mean, it's, it, this is not a series of almost predatory actions by the police. This is normal police conduct, but it's pivoted on the idea that there's a sufficient basis to bring in the sniffer dog. It's not some further egregious conduct by the police. It's actually normal, prudent, sensible police procedure. But it starts with the judgment call, which the trial judge said was not a good judgment call, that he had sufficient grounds to call in the sniffer dog. Yes, and, we, and that takes me to my second point, Justice, in that here, with regard to the actions of the officer on the ground, we accept the trial judge's findings. And it appears this is what Madam Justice Kular has done too. She's, a, she's indicated that seriousness was actually quite minimal in terms of this case. And the second point that we make is that the new evidence that would be admitted would only be to assess impact. And once again, the dissent accepted that seriousness was on the low end of the scale. The further evidence that the Crown says they may have called, such as why the, uh, Mr. Zacharias was patted down, would play little to no role in the impact assessment. And so once again, the Crown does not suffer prejudice and the record is sufficient. Lastly, in terms of the third point I'd like to make is that there's a question of whether these are new issues or a review of what the trial judge was actually required to do in the first instance. Now, in terms of the, um, the appellant's position is that the purposive and generous approach requires all stakeholders, defense, Crown, and the judge to consider the entire chain of events. The judge in this case did not rely on any authority as to why the obtained in a manner requirement did not apply to the unlawful detention. She should have followed through in terms of looking at the entire chain of events and the Crown should have met their onus. Here, it seems that all parties failed and then we have an accused uh, in a case where the Crown has not uh, uh, met its onus or even tried to and a judge has not followed through that entire chain of events. Yeah, I, I, I had a kind of a go at the Americans, now I'm going to kind of bring in the Europeans. Uh, we have an adversarial system. We don't, do not have an inquisitorial system. And uh, it is for counsel to present the case, not for the judge. 
and to the extent the judge takes over the case, I think you've departed, you know, if you're saying there's an obligation for the judge to take over the case, I think you're departing from the adversarial system, which has significant consequences. Yeah, so I'll just answer that uh, question. Uh, we would say that Section 11D applies and that the, the, the trial judge has a duty to ensure a fair, fair trial. And I would just point the court to the test that when there's an un uncontradicted evidence of a charter breach, then the judge should intervene at that stage. Thank you. Ms. Fetchuk. Good morning, Justices. This is an appeal as of right involving a dissent on a narrow issue of law. The trial judge and the majority of the Court of Appeal followed settled law established by this court and grant nearly 14 years ago when they found that the drugs seized from the appellant truck were properly admitted despite a minuscule error in assessing the grounds for an investigative detention and a dog sniff search. We say there is no need for this court to address any of the issues raised by the appellant and that the appeal should be dismissed for three reasons. I'm going to deal with them in the opposite order that my friend did. First, uh, we say the majority of the Court of Appeal correctly ruled that the appellant was not entitled to raise for the first time on appeal charter arguments that were one, not pleaded, two, not argued, and three, on which limited evidence was called. And we say this is equally true of the issue being raised before this court for the first time. This is the scope of the automatic excision rule. An appeal as of right is circumscribed by the question of law in which the judge of the Court of Appeal dissented. And we would note that the scope of the automatic excision rule was not argued in the courts below. It was not addressed by the dissenting judge. And so we would say it's not clear there's jurisdiction for this court to address the issue. So it's not just question of prudence, you think it goes to our jurisdiction, whether we can speak to this? That's right. Our primary position is that it may be a question of jurisdiction because it was not argued by the parties. There is no uh, full record. You do not have the perspective of the court below, and so it is not a question on which the dissenting judge dissented. But in order, it, I guess the, the, the sorry to, to jump in, but the, I guess the argument would be in order to answer the question of law upon which the dissent turned, we would have to verify if the path of reasoning was correct and that included this issue. I, perhaps by necessary implication, but it gets, I would say, down a, perhaps a rabbit hole of errors of law, but if the court feels it is necessary, um, then we would suggest our secondary position is that the court should not deal with this issue and should not uh, we'd say the test for hearing the new issues altogether is not met, and that includes the test for hearing the question of whether or not the automatic excision rule should be expanded in this case to include warrantless arrests. Um, in our view, this is not the case in which the court needs to decide it. For those reasons I mentioned, it was not argued. The court does not have the perspective of the trial courts. The automatic excision rule is already the subject of significant judicial and academic discussion as it relates to the search warrant context in which it was 
developed. So to extend it further for the first time in this court without the benefit of that record would have significant implications and we would urge the court not to do so. Maybe, I'm, maybe I'm not understanding you, but are you saying that these issues are being raised for the first time before this court? Weren't they dealt with by Justice Kular? And isn't that what really this, this proceeding is about, whether Justice Kular's dissent was, was, was a proper... Uh, was correct as opposed to that of the, of the majority? I mean, I'm not I'm missing something here. No, Justice Cooler finds that there were this series of, I think, what she called or uh, cascading breaches. So instead of finding the two breaches that the trial judge and the Court of Appeal, the majority of the Court of Appeal found, Justice Cooler finds six additional breaches. So additional Section 8 breaches, additional Section 9 breaches. She doesn't uh, she decides without analysis, I suppose, if I can say it that way, and assumes that the dog sniff uh, search must be excised from the grounds of arrest, and so for the arrest was necessarily unlawful and the search that followed. But we would say that's not obvious. Uh, it was, we don't have the benefit of her reasons on that except for the conclusion that it applies. And so I suppose for the same reason, if the court feels it's part of the new issues, we would say the majority was right in not engaging in those new issues, and that would include this question of automatic excision and whether it applies to warrantless arrests. Did the Justice Coulin, did she not say that it does not make a difference if these are new breaches or if it is considered as a chain of events? Well, she said it doesn't matter if it's new breaches or whether it's a continue, the breach continues, so the breaching conduct continues. So she didn't really look at it as neutral conduct that followed the natural things that happen after you discover criminal evidence, she took those Section 8 and Section 9 breaches and said you can either call them separate ones or you can widen the expanse. But what mattered from our perspective is that she characterizes what follows as charter infringing conduct. And we say it matters. It matters whether it is simply the conduct, the natural consequences, the logical things that follow from having a dog sniff and hit on a car, as opposed to saying that everything that followed was not charter compliant. And it matters at the first branch about how serious the state conduct was, and we say it also matters under the second branch, which is really what is at issue today. Uh, what do we look at uh, in terms of the impact? Uh, this isn't a case about obtained in the manner. Uh, I want to make that clear. I think there's no suggestion in the court below, and I think there's no suggestion from the respondent today that the evidence in this case that my friend sought to exclude at trial was obtained in the manner. Uh, the evidence wasn't the dog sniff smell, it wasn't that hit, it was the drugs that were taken from the back of his car at the search incident to arrest. And so in that context, the trial judge looked at all the evidence, the chain of events, took that purposive and generous approach that this court says to take in Tim. But when we look at the impact of the charter infringing conduct, then we say the trial judge and the majority of the Court of Appeal rightly focused on the breach, on the impact of the dog sniff, uh, which was a minimally intrusive search. Uh, and so we say the majority got it right, the dissent was wrong to allow the new issues to be heard, and then wrong to conclude that all of the conduct was charter infringing conduct. When we're balancing under 24-2, I mean, don't, all the charter infringing conduct has to be on the scale, whether we classify it as a separate breach of a, 
eight or nine right or whether we see it as an impact. So what's wrong with what Chief Justice Kular did in terms of saying it has to be on the scale if we're doing a proper grant analysis at the end of the day? And before you answer it, let me just add to that. I, I'm interested in your answer to Justice Martin. The language of 24.2 itself encourages that view, having regard to all the circumstances. That's right. And so we're not saying that the circumstances aren't taken into account. We're saying it matters whether you call the things that happened after independent or even related charter infringing conduct or whether you focus on what the conduct was. So here, the conduct, and perhaps it's worth talking about the only issue at trial, the only issue was whether or not the investigating officers uh, had that reasonable suspicion to believe that they, or to suspect, I suppose, that the appellant was involved in drug offenses when he made the decision to initiate the dog sniff search. And the trial judge's findings, which are findings of fact, and the dissenting judge does not disagree, are that the officers honestly held subjective suspicions fell just short of the mark when obsessed, uh, assessed objectively. It was a very close call in an on-the-ground application of a legal standard at a preliminary step of the investigation. And so this is the error we're talking about. This is the conduct we're talking about. Uh, I think everyone agreed that everything that followed after was unassailable. Uh, if that dog sniff search could form part of the grounds for arrest, then there is no question that the arrest is proper. There's no question the search incident to arrest was proper. The very brief initial pat-down search, which was a, more of a tap on the outside of a pocket and a question about anything sharp, uh, the handcuffing, the transport to the police station, all of that was entirely proper conduct. And so we consider it when we consider the, obtain, the threshold question about the evidence that goes in. We can, the tragedy was alive to what happened, but if we put undue weight and characterizes charter violating conduct that is um, otherwise unassailable, then I think it distorts it, it distorts the inquiry. Um, and I'd say this because in most cases, uh, say for a dog, in a, the dog sniff search context, it's rare that the only evidence at trial is the result of the dog sniff, the hit. There's usually evidence that has been seized, an arrest that has been made, probably a transport to a police station, a, you know, search at the police station before someone is lodged in cells. And so if we, and these are all things that are real consequences for the accused. Uh, we don't trivialize that. They impact liberty, they impact privacy, but if we then characterize that as a serious infringement in every case, then it devalues the assessment that is done under the second branch. Um, and or so it protects the rights that were intended to guarantee exactly those interests. Yes, but then how do we tell the difference between a minor uh, intrusion, like a dog sniff, and something major like a warrantless strip search on the side of the road. If because the court has the good judgment and, and the tool of section 24.2 that allows a balancing of all circumstances. And so we say what we do is we, that good judgment we say is reflected in looking at the impact of what happens to the accused and the circumstances. So if we weight too heavily the things that are just ordinary conduct that are not charter infringing conduct. It's but not it's ordinary state-supported intrusions into rights. Either they're lawful or they're not lawful or they fall within perhaps a middle ground. But the idea that because it's normal procedure doesn't strip it of the fact that it's rights-based that we have to be analyzing. 
and from the point of departure of the arbitrary detention and the unreasonable search at the front end, which are charter breaches, which are, while they may be minimally intrusive, you keep speaking to the dog sniff, but he was arbitrarily detained as well. Well, he was initially, um, sorry. He was initially legally detained, of course he was, because he had tinted windows, but he was detained arbitrarily beyond what was necessary then, and, this, and, and there was no reasonable suspicion to go further. This was a finding. This is, this is why, getting back to the question before you even get to impact, it may be minimally intrusive, but it's a charter breach, is it not? It is, but there's a spectrum uh, of charter breaches. So it, we've, are, we've crossed the line, there is a breach, we are now in the 24-2 analysis, and under the 24-2 analysis we look at what the breach was, what the conduct was. Was it systemic conduct? Was it an action taken in the absence of any grounds, as was the case in Harrison? Or was it, as this case, something that was so close to the line, but just under? And that has to matter. It has to matter under the first branch. When does, what does that mean? Because I have the trial judge open, judgment open in front of me. Mm -hmm. Although not over the line, he was extremely close to crossing it. It was therefore an error on the low end of the scale. What does that mean for seriousness? Does that pull towards inclusion? That's the, I'll come back to that point that I didn't understand in the analysis. I can understand why it's less serious than other breaches, that's plain. And I, I suppose I'd also highlight that she didn't just find it was close to the line, but she also found this was a case where the officer knew the applicable standard. It wasn't a misunderstanding of the law, and he tried to apply that standard. It was an error in judgment. Um, her language, the dissenting judge's language of it pulling towards inclusion, uh, is not language that has not been used in other courts. Like, I would refer you to the Jennings decision. Uh, I was, when you asked your question earlier, I looked through the materials I had readily available in our condensed book, and the Court of Appeal in Jennings talks about, uh, in that case, in the breath sample uh, context about, because it was a minor misjudgment in that case as well, they say the first branch of grant pulled towards inclusion of the evidence. They use the same language as Justice Kular, uh, but the majority and the trial judge here uh, didn't frame it in those terms. They said it didn't pull strongly towards exclusion, and I think that's probably a so that's more a, fair, yeah. that's, was the approach taken by... Well, that's good to hear. So, so, because it, just the fact that it was repeated in Jennings that, that doesn't provide me with, speaking no. respectfully, with great comfort. The, 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 it's one thing to say it doesn't pull strongly towards exclusion, and it's another thing to say, well, it's minimally intrusive, it's not so serious, um, but it doesn't necessarily pull towards inclusion. It becomes important on the balancing point we move away from the fruit of the poisonous tree and we find ourselves where we should be balancing under Grant and 24-2. We want to get the first branch correct before we start. I realize you have serious arguments to make about the second branch, but we want to before we go forward. No, and I think that's right, and I think you can rest assured that the majority got that right, that they assessed it and they concluded, as did the trial judge, it didn't pull strongly in, in uh, there's also a kind of a, I don't know, I don't want to use pejorative language, but 
There's a false sense of certainty when you read appellate decisions. Oh, it was, it was clear that the, uh, the actions of the officer were, you know, charity uh, uh, infringing, etc. Well, lots of times it isn't clear at all. Lots of, uh, sometimes it's crystal clear, like you're way outside the line. This isn't, you know, this, this evidence is not going in. You've just, you've blown it. The other one is, I got them cold, and we we're going to do by the book, it's, this evidence is going in. And then there's this gray zone. And um, my guess is the officer, I shouldn't guess, but I can see the officer, an officer in that situation, an officer in that situation saying, I'm not quite sure which side of the line this is going to fall on if this goes to trial. But c'est un beau risque, right? It's, it's, it's something worth pursuing. And I, I, you know, someone else will tell me whether I've, I've landed on the wrong side of the line, close enough that I'm going to give it a try. Well, and I think the record in this case is a great example of that decision-making process, Justice Rowe. Uh, one of the exhibits was the in-car or the dash cam of the stop, and we see and hear the officer narrating the whole thing and describing the things he's considering as he builds the suspicion and in his testimony he talks about how he thought he had reasonable suspicion but it was close in his head so he waited for another piece of information that he thought would push it over the edge and I think this is a case where reasonable jurists could disagree on whether or not reasonable suspicion was made out. Uh, some cases seem very similar on the facts where the courts have said and this court has said reasonable suspicion was made out. Uh, but we're stuck with the finding of the trial judge here uh, that it wasn't, but it is just below the mark. She's very clear about this. And so if there is a error in judgment at the low end of that spectrum on the first branch, we say this is it. So if there is an error, uh, so Justice Cassidy flagged uh, the whole question about it being, uh, both of them found that it was uh, in and not out. So if there is an error and um, it should be either neutral or excluded overall, what kind of an impact does that have? Oh, sorry. I think I'm not understanding the question fully. So my question is more specifically. So in this case, there's, they seem to say that on the first grant factor it's in, it's inclusive. Um, if they're in, we find they're incorrect, such as was asked previously, uh, what kind of an impact? Let's say we find that it's either neutral or it pulls to be excluded. Right. How does that impact overall? Right. So I'll just be clear. So the majority and the trial judge find it doesn't pull strongly towards exclusion, not that it pulls towards inclusion. Uh, I think I would come back to my initial point that the, dis the appellant's right of appeal here is only on the question of law in which the dissenting court uh, judge dissented. But uh, put that aside. Yeah. If, certainly. I would say that on any reading, any assessment based on the factual findings of the trial judge and on the record here, it is difficult to see how the officer's conduct in this case be, could be characterized as anything other than the low end of the spectrum. He uh, was well aware that he was engaging in a detention. He provided rights to counsel repeatedly. He uh, instructed when his backup came, he offered to bring the accused to the station right away before the dog sniff search so he could have access to a lawyer if he wanted and the accused to decline. So this is, I don't see on these facts how this, con if this conduct is characterized at the serious end, then it's hard to imagine any charter infringing conduct that wouldn't be similarly characterized. 
Can we get back to your um, assertion that um, these are new issues and that the record is insufficient yeah. um, and that you're suffering prejudice? Uh, I don't understand those arguments and I don't understand what, um, g given how full this record is, um, what, would, what are you saying you didn't get a chance to do? So if this court is prepared to consider the actions that follow as charter infringing conduct then as, I, as the whole circumstance unfolded so everybody knows that it starts in a spot and it ends in a spot so that continuum of facts is obviously always an issue right so no that's right but if if we see it as a separate charter breaches that is a more serious situation than one uh one breach that taints if that if i could say it that way, they're different things. And so it matters how uncalled for the pat-down search was. It matters why the officer chose to put him in the back of the car instead of letting him stand at the side of the road. It matters why he was at the station for as long as he was. And there just wasn't evidence called on that because it was never an issue. Uh, the majority refers to the charter notice. Uh, my friend says, well, they were unduly focused on this formal pleading, but we say it wasn't just that. This was a voir dire in which the evidence was front and center, the conduct of the officer was available for the accused uh, to elicit evidence, to make submissions. There were no submissions made on the lawfulness of the arrest. There were no submissions made on the search of the vehicle. There were no submissions made about the length of detention at the station or the pat-down search. There were no questions asked of the witnesses. Indeed, in the submissions on the 24-2, the counsel for the appellant at trial made no submissions about the impact of the Section 9 detention itself. She focused only on the Section 8 breach, as did the Crown. So we say, to the extent this was a very narrowly focused analysis, the trial judge was relying on counsel to frame the issues, and she responded to the issues as framed. And this is not a situation, I would say, where in some cases, a trial judge might have a duty to see uncontroverted evidence uh, of a charter breach, or they have an unrepresented accused, and they have a duty uh, to flag those issues to enter into voir dires. But this was not that case. They were already in a voir dire. Counsel for, the, uh, for Mr. Zacharias tailored the charter voir dire issues as it went. Initially, there were 10A and 10B allegations that were made, and after the evidence came out, she focused her submissions, abandoned those claims. And so I think the trial judge should have properly followed the lead of counsel in this. And so then at the Court of Appeal to come and say, there weren't just the two breaches we told you about at trial, but all this other conduct also constituted uh, separate uh, charter breaches. We say that's the new issue, that was the thing not dealt with, and that was the thing on which evidence was not called and submissions were not made. We do have a, we do, Justice Kular notes, paragraph 38, that the trial judge made findings of fact that Constable McPhail was aware of the relevant legal rules, yeah. was attempting to comply with them, thought he had complied, she says there's no basis to interfere with this finding, nor is there any basis for finding that Constable McPhail's conduct amounted to a deliberate or systemic breach of Mr. Zacharias's charter rights. Is that relevant to what the probative character of what the Crown might 
perhaps speculatively have brought into evidence? Well, it certainly applies to the Section 9 issue. Those findings, I think, apply with equal force uh, on that issue because it was the same decision. It was the same conduct. And so those findings about knowing the standard and trying to apply the standard apply. Uh, I would hazard a guess that she would have come to the same conclusions had the other conduct been an issue, but we didn't have the chance to call events. I appreciate this isn't a case where there's a whole unrelated right to counsel at the station or something that we that on which no evidence was called, but it certainly is something the Crown would have fleshed out in significantly more detail because it matters what the state of the mind of the officer was and, and if they were continuing to breach, uh, as opposed to simply uh, the, the, I recognize the ordinary course, I use that, and I look at you, Justice Martin, I realize it, I'm not trying to trivialize that these are real things, but we know that not every consequence takes, is taken into account because we stop at some point in the state conduct analysis. We don't consider that if the person was held for bail, that they served pretrial custody, that they had to come to court. Um, these are real consequences for people, but they are not part of the analysis under 24-2. So, so Justice, I'm sorry to, to harp on this, Justice Kular, paragraph 48, speaking about the strip search, she writes, I'm in the middle of 48, at the oral hearing of this appeal, the Crown stated it would have called evidence in the voir dire about the alleged strip search at the RCMP detachment if that issue had been raised at trial. However, it did not say that it would have adduced further evidence about any of the other additional charter breaches alleged by Mr. Zacharias, and therefore I presume it would not have. The new issues can be decided based entirely on the trial judge's existing finding of facts in her voir dire ruling. That sounds fair to me. Well, I would urge you to perhaps read the, we have the transcript of the appeal proceeding unusually in this case, and I would suggest uh, that if you look at it, this was a telephone appeal hearing conducted in the middle of COVID, and the Crown gave an example of evidence on which uh, more, uh, an issue on which more evidence might be called, but it wasn't an exhaustive list, and the Crown does not say we wouldn't have called it about anything else. The discussion then moves on after that example is given. Uh, so I don't know that there was a concession in the court below that that was the only area. And we've put in our factum, and I'm not going to revisit it, other kinds of things that would be relevant if you're trying to assess what this conduct looked like, if we're treating it as charter infringing in its own right. I must say, I'm, I'm somewhat baffled along with, I guess, Justice Martin as to what it is that the Crown would have led. Because when I read the reasons for decision of the trial judge and Justice Coulard, I think they have a very balanced and even sympathetic view of uh, Officer McPhail. Right? There was, there's nothing to suggest that they took the view that Officer McPhail was cavalier, that he was um, dismissive, that he was uh, unconcerned. As a matter of fact, there's every indication that he was seeking to carry out his duties properly. And so what more could you have said? Right? that you know, the officer was trying to do his job. I, I agree entirely. And so I guess the question is, like, what do we do with what happens if it's after a charter breach? How much do we consider? And it's hard because 24-2 is not a bright line test. It is always contextual. And so 
Um, and I would point out the trial judge was alive to the entire chain of events. She had just heard the evidence. She had just found the breaches. She had described several times in her re reasons what had happened to the appellant. Um, but we would say she follows this direction that this court, since Grant, has followed in its 24-2 analyses. Um, Grant was a detention case and a 10-B case that led to the seizure of a gun. It led to the seizure of marijuana. And in the, the decision, uh, we know that Mr. Grant is arrested and he is brought to the police station. And all of that is spoken about by the court. But in assessing the impact of the charter infringing conduct itself in this very first application of the second branch of the test, the court looks at the impact of the detention and the impact of the 10B case, but doesn't get into all the uh, events that followed Mr., uh, Mr. Grant's arrest and his being brought to the station. The focus is on that detention and the impact of that on Mr. Grant and on his being deprived of his right to counsel. For all the events which followed, um, this should not have a value on the second branch of 24-2. Is it what you're saying? Well, I mean, every case is to be, yeah. is, is, is its own. But where it is the, there are no new missteps where the rest of the conduct is charter compliant, then we say it is taken into account, but it doesn't weigh heavily. It's not... The focus should be on the impact of the breach, on the interest that the breach was designed to protect. Not, it is not the fruit of the poison tree. We don't have that doctrine here in Canada, as Justice Rowe uh, alluded to. And I would refer you perhaps to this court's decision in Tim uh, from last year, where that was a case where there were multiple breaches. It was a warrantless arrest based on a mistake of law, led to two pat-down searches, a search of the vehicle, and a strip search. And I would note that the arrest and all of the searches were expressly challenged at trial. And this court held the arrest was unlawful, as were two of the searches. Uh, but two of the other searches, one of the pat-down searches and the strip search, were not Section 8 breaches. So we defined the charter infringing conduct. When the court went to the obtained in a manner, threshold question, all of that conduct was taken into account in deciding whether evidence obtained from the charter compliance searches was part of this analysis under 24-2. And we took the, the proposive and generous approach into taking that evidence, even though it was obtained from a charter compliance search, and bringing it uh, into the 24-2 analysis under the obtained in a manner. But at the second stage of grant, when assessing the impact of that conduct, the court focused on those three breaches. The arrest, the impact of the arrest, the impact of the two searches, but didn't focus on the strip search and the other search, which were charter compliant conduct. And so we say, this is the approach the court has taken, it's the approach the trial judge took, there's really nothing new this court needs to say in this case. I think the existing law suffices. And I see I, my time is up, so thank you very much. Thank you. Mr. Jeremy Streeter. Thank you. Good morning. Ontario's position is in line with that of the respondent. And that is that the, when you're looking at the second stage of the grant test, the focus should be on the immediate and direct impact of the charter breach on the accused charter protected interests. And the focus should not be on the entire chain of events that takes place after the discovery of evidence such as the uh, arrest and processing of the accused and holding him or her for court purposes, et cetera. 
unless there was further independent misconduct during that process. And in my position, this does not represent a change in the law. This is how courts, including this court, have been approaching the second stage of the grant test all along, including, as my colleague Ms. Pashik indicated, in grant itself. Uh, as my colleague said, in grant, it was the unlawful detention and questioning of Mr. Grant leading up to the discovery of the firearm that was considered under the second stage and not what happened after the discovery of the firearm. A similar focused approach was also taken by this court in Harrison, where again, the focus was on the impact of the detention and search on Mr. Harrison prior to the discovery of the cocaine in his car, not what happened to him afterwards. And the court even commented that had it not turned up incriminating evidence, the detention of Mr. Harrison would have been brief. And a third example is in Lay, where the court found that the brief detention did have a significant impact on Mr. Lay's rights, but not because of what took place after the police discovered a firearm in his bag, but because the police had no justification to investigate him at all. The focus was on that initial detention and its impact on the accused. Have you had a, that, Mr. Streeter, have you had a look at McCollman? Yes, I have. And, and, and uh, on well, and its discussion of, of the impact of the breach of charter protected interests at so the second stage and the subsequent conduct. Yes. While the court in McCollman did make reference to what took place back at the police station, in my submission, that still was not the focus of the analysis, which remained on the immediate impact of the charter breach on Mr. McCollman. And we're not saying that it's entirely irrelevant. What we're saying is that the focus should be on that immediate impact, similar to what the Court of Appeal in Jennings uh, uh, concluded. And the Court of Appeal in Jennings made the very good point, referring back to Grant, that this breath sample procedure is the type of police activity that is minimally intrusive. And that should have less of an impact on the accused. And our submission is that Jennings is good law and that the framework in Jennings should be applied not only in the breath sample context, but in other contexts as well, including ones involving sniffer dogs, such as the present appeal. Similar to the breath sample context, deploying a sniffer dog is activity that is a minimally intrusive on the accused's charter protected rights. And the danger, I suppose, if the focus shifts to the entire chain of events, including what happens after the discovery of evidence, then the result in almost every case would be the same, a strong pull towards exclusion. Because the discovery of evidence almost always leads to significant deprivations of someone's liberty, because it almost always leads to the accused being arrested and processed. And then taken even further, it could lead to pretrial detention and other deprivations of liberty during the criminal trial process. And this has the potential to overwhelm the Section 24.2 analysis. And in my position, it makes more sense to focus on the immediate and direct impact of a charter breach, because at that point, a person generally has the right to be left alone. And that's the real impact of a charter breach, is on that right. But excuse what? me, I mean, if we know what the sequela are, as you're, you're uh, pointing them out, doesn't that mean that 
real attention needs to be paid at the outset to the reasonable suspicion or reasonable grounds, whatever standard we're doing. Isn't, I mean, what you're saying is that we know that there's all this potentially invasive privacy-based things. So shouldn't we be thinking about what rule then, understanding these consequences, what rule is appropriate under 24-2 to protect all the interests at stake? The rule is one that would protect members of society in general. I see my time is up, but if I can just answer this question. Yes. Thank you. Members of society have a right to be left alone, as I said. And so that's why when a charter breach occurs and incurs on that right, then that should be taken seriously and considered. But if it's a minimally intrusive step that the police take, such as a sniffer dog, then on members of society, that would not have a huge impact. But we must remember the context when evidence is discovered. When evidence is discovered, people no longer have a right to be left alone, and society wouldn't expect them to be left alone at that stage. Society would expect the police to do their job and to continue with the normal course of processing and arresting and the rest. And it's in that, it's that important context that we say that the court should keep in mind and why the focus should be on the immediate impacts. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, Justices. The Attorney General of Alberta intervenes to offer its perspective on two issues that arise from this appeal. First, the reputation of the administration of justice is best served when charter remedies are proportionate to the actual breach of the accused rights. A technical or trivial breach at the beginning of an investigation is just that, a minor breach. It does not become a serious breach by treating each subsequent step in the investigation as compounding the original breach. Time permitting, I will also address a second issue that arises in this case. The Attorney General of Alberta's position is that evidence obtained in violation of the charter is admissible for the limited purpose of evaluating an officer's grounds for arrest without warrant. The first issue is the methodology for assessing the impact of the breach under the second grant factor. Alberta supports the submissions of the respondent and Attorney General for Ontario that the focus is on the actual breach of the accused rights, not the consequences that follow the discovery of incriminating evidence. This approach best accords with the purpose of Section 24.2, which is the long-term maintenance of public confidence in the justice system. In any serious case that begins with a charter breach, there are likely to be significant intrusions on the accused liberty, handcuffing, pat-down searches, holding at a police station, perhaps even pretrial detention. To echo my friend's comments, we do not minimize these consequences for the accused person. But the grant test is about situating the breach on the spectrum of seriousness. An approach that treats these steps as compounding the original breach all but guarantees exclusion under the second grant factor. This does not promote confidence in the administration of justice. Rather, exclusion of evidence where the original breach does not significantly impact privacy interests would bring the administration of justice into disrepute and contribute to the public sense that cases are not being heard on their merits due to technicalities. In our factum, we offer a reasonable hypothetical, which is a modified version of the facts on, in Bell Navis. That case involved a police officer who saw a stolen vehicle in a plain view during a traffic stop. The prosecution conceded a Section 8 breach, though this court found it to be little more than a technical breach and the evidence was admitted. 
our hypothetical proposes, what if the charter breach was instead the beginning of the investigation instead of the end? What if the officer discovered evidence of a serious crime like sexual assault? Then the investigation proceeds in a predictable manner. The accused is handcuffed, searched, held at a police station, subject to a penile swab. Do these subsequent steps change the t original technical nature of the breach? We say no. We say the outcome of the 24-2 analysis cannot depend on whether the breach occurred at the beginning or the end of the investigation. To use another example, one could imagine a situation in which there was a change in the law between the time of arrest and the time of trial, where police made a highly technical breach at the beginning of investigation because they were re relying on the laws that existed at the time. And we say that the entire investigation should not collapse like a house of cards because of a technical breach at the beginning of an otherwise impeccable investigation. This approach is consistent with a generous and purposive protection of charter rights. Consider, as my friends have mentioned, Harrison, another case involving a traffic stop. In that case, the evidence was properly excluded, not because Mr. Harrison was later arrested and detained at a police station, but because the underlying police conduct was brazen, flagrant, and a serious violation of Mr. Harrison's right. So Alberta's position at the court is that the court was correct in Grant, Harrison, and Lee when it focused on the impact of the breach on the charter protected rights of the accused. This methodology is clear and predictable and it ensures the remedy is proportionate to the impact of the breach on the accused. I now will briefly address the second issue raised in the Attorney General of Alberta's factum. Alberta's position is that evidence that is later to be determined to be obtained in violation of the charter is admissible for the limited purpose of establishing grounds for warrantless arrest. The Alberta Court of Appeal recently ruled on this issue in the lengthy and thorough decision of the Queen and Love. The court reviewed the history and rationale for the doctrine of excision and whether it applies in the warrantless context. Ultimately, the Alberta Court of Appeal concluded that the doctrine of automatic excision was limited to review of search warrants. Uh, counsel for the appellant argues that Love is an outlier in the jurisprudence and that there are the, the weight of jurisprudence goes contrary to Love. The uh, Attorney General for Alberta would point out that Love reviews the jurisprudence in great detail at paragraph 78 to 88 of the decision, uh, considers this the issue in light of Chahill and Patterson and other recent decisions of this court. And the Attorney General of Alberta would also point out that this court recently denied leave uh, to appeal on this issue in Love uh, about a month ago. Subject to the, the, any questions, those are my submissions. I see that my time is almost up. Thank you very much. Reply. Uh, two points by way of uh, reply, Justice. Uh, first, in terms of the respondents and the interveners saying that the approach of the trial judge is the same approach taken along all along by this court and um, examples given such as Grant and Harrison and Tim, etc. I would just caution the, the court to not turn a uh, a negative into a positive. Just because this court didn't engage in an impact analysis in those cases doesn't mean that it positively, positively stands for the principle that it should not be engaged in. This court is bound, of course, by the facts that come before it and must proceed uh, accordingly. It took 40 years just for a case such as Tim to come to this court, and now this court has decided that a mistake of law um, cannot gr uh, be grounds for arrest. And it's taken 41 years for a very basic uh, case such as this where we're dealing with an unlawful detention where the grounds can flow from that or not to come before this court. Um, all we say is that those cases do not stand for a positive principle. This is the first time this type of uh, fact pattern has come arisen before this court and should be decided accordingly. 
second, in terms of the jurisdictional issue that my friend raised, um, all I would say is that what, the just, what Justice Kular did was that she saw that there's much more going on in terms of the charter infringements that were addressed, then were addressed by the uh, trial judge, including the Section 9 breach that the trial judge uh, herself found but did not address. And all that Justice Kular did was take the obtained in a manner requirement and apply it as it should be applied. The breaches were contextually, temporally, and causally related and address all that was not addressed. And she did that uh, quite rightly. That's all. Thank you. So we uh, thank all counsel for their very able submissions and the court is going to take the case under advisement. Thank you. Have a nice day and the court is adjourned until tomorrow morning, 9.30.